All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Grant Tinsley about the accuracy of body composition measurements. We discuss the body composition scales you have in your bathroom, how these stack up to what is considered gold standard measurement techniques, and how much weight we should put on the numbers that are provided by your at-home bathroom scales compared to, say, the in-body assessment that you get done at your gym. And we also discuss protocols for ensuring better reliability of the numbers that you are getting and how these will reflect your overall body composition progress. We then discuss another area that Grant is heavily involved in, which is intermittent fasting for active populations, including both men and women. So this was really a great all-around discussion for anyone wanting to understand their body composition data better, and also for those interested in intermittent fasting. So for those unfamiliar with Grant, he is an associate professor at Texas Tech University, the director of the Energy Balance and Body Composition Laboratory, and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and certified sports nutritionist. He has over 150 peer-reviewed journal articles and abstracts with his major research interests being sports nutrition strategies, body composition assessment techniques and intermittent fasting in active populations, hence our conversation today. So I will pop links in the show notes to where you can find Grant over at his website, granttinsley.com. And there is also a link there straight to PubMed and Google Scholar for his research. 
and also Grant's Instagram account, where he is, I would say, moderately active on. Um, but anything he posts, super interesting. So, um... That's how you will find Grant. And just a reminder, the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on this show. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Grant Tinsley. Thank you so much for taking the time with me this morning. In fact, I am in Christchurch about to go and watch some bodybuilding show tomorrow, of which our mutual friend Eric Helms is beginning his like well, it's his first of about 48 shows he's doing in about eight weeks. Yes, that's very exciting. I didn't realize you would get to be there in person, and I'm sure that will be uh, yeah, a great way for him to kick off his competitive season. Totally. And of course, I saw you both together on, I believe, your feed. And I was like, ah, oh, mutual friends. So I knew that this would be a great conversation to have about your interest in intermittent fasting, which is very unrelated to the top, that topic, but body composition techniques and um, all things sort of health and fitness, which is really cool. So Grant, can we start with um, just getting a little bit of your background? How did you get interested in diet, intermittent fasting? and or, you know, things are related to body composition. Was it sort of uh, through your own interest in sport or was it sort of the other way around? You started learning about it and then you started working in that space. Yeah, I think it was honestly some of both. So um, I was involved in sports growing up, always enjoyed um, watching sports. Um, my dad was very into sports. Uh, my mom was to some extent, she was as big of a, a fan, but was a swimmer herself um, from back in the day and water, water polo player. Um, so I had this interest in that in terms of more, say, fitness specifically, uh, you know, when I was 11 or 12, I began to develop an interest in um, nutrition and lifting weights just because of kind of an increased awareness of, uh, you know, how it could change my athletic performance or my physique or so on. Um, so I had an interest in that uh, that kind of continued to develop throughout my adolescence and I also, I've always been a nerd. I love school. I love every subject in school, but science was a favorite of mine. Um, so when I went off to university, I was studying physiology um, just because I loved the human body and wanted to learn more about it. Uh, and then I added a degree in nutritional sciences as well. Um, so I was learning about, a lot about the human body, about nutrition. And then I was also learning from a lot of other people, say in the gym. Um, I had never been in a situation where I had um, lifted weights for sports or had much guidance in terms of sports nutrition and um, kind of structured exercise. Uh, even though I exercised, I didn't truly know what I was uh, doing in terms of programming. So it was kind of this interesting combination of learning more about um, the practice and seeing what other people have been exposed to, as well as learning about the body and nutrition. Um, so that kind of continued on through my educational journey. So I studied, as mentioned, physiology and nutrition in my undergraduate work. And then I went on to study biomedical sciences in my master's program. And that certainly gave me a, a greater appreciation for the human body because it involved a lot of cadaver dissection. Um, so I spent a lot of time, just uh, a lot of time with anatomy and physiology 
And then in my doctoral program is where I truly um, had my first, I guess, formal training in exercise uh, because I studied kinesiology and exercise nutrition. Um, so throughout all this formal education and some, some additional certifications and um, sports nutrition and strength and conditioning, uh, there were kind of these parallel paths being walked with the, the formal academic side and then my own kind of personal interest in applying some of this information. Um, so in terms of intermittent fasting specifically, my first doctoral advisor uh, at Baylor University, who's named Paul Labounty, uh, he's a good friend, he had been the first author on a position statement on meal frequency that was written for the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, so I had seen this, and this was an area I was somewhat interested in. Um, I was also interested in this kind of unique doctoral program that really combined nutrition and exercise, um, because I hadn't seen too many of those. Uh, so I went to study with him and kind of came in at a time where um, there was sort of a shift from this idea that a very high meal frequency was needed in um, all settings, whether it was athletic performance, weight maintenance, health. Uh, there was sort of this prevailing view that you needed to eat frequent small meals throughout the day. Um, in the position statement, some of the conclusions were related to um, evidence not necessarily supporting that, um, that it was a little bit equivocal or there, there weren't queer, clear benefits of these higher meal frequencies. Um, so that's sort of where I came in. So he and I had lots of discussions about the other end of the spectrum. Um, so if we saw that, you know, a very high meal frequency may not nece be necessary in many cases, um, at what point does meal frequency matter? If you go low enough, do you get to a point where you, you're compromising adaptations to exercise or seeing adverse effects? Um, so that's sort of the background for, of when I arrived there uh, and began conducting some work in this area. And that's just continued on over the last um, decade or so. Yeah. And Grant, like I, I understand you do, you consult to companies. Do you also do individual sort of consults and things like I that? I don't typically um, for sort of family and friends, I will, but that's yeah. not really part of the um, business. Most of that consulting is more statistical analysis or help with kind of sports nutrition products, um, things in that realm. Yeah. Okay. Because I always wonder with um, people sort of in your position, you're very heavily involved in the research aspect and, and what the literature says. Um, but of course, and you'll see this regardless of whether you consult with people or not, like there'll be the um, anecdotal stories of friends and family. And so you'll be reading something and, and uh, other things will be happening over in this sort of like... Um, uh, I suppose there's other evidence, but it's not necessarily sort of research based. Do you see much of that with some of your work or not so much? I do. I think, um, yeah, if I'm, I, I do think, you know, when you're in this area, many people are interested in sharing their own kind of personal anecdotes or, or questions and, um, and have some, some interesting views. Sometimes I, I take a, I don't know, middle of the road approach there, there are many individuals where they, they've found some type of, nutrition or exercise paradigm that works for them. It's helping them move towards their goals. And I'm, I'm happy for them. Um, even if, you know, what I'm hearing them say isn't always entirely consistent with, you know, how I view the, the literature. I know, you know, there, there's a little bit of an art to it, the literature informing our recommendations, but then, um, you know, tailoring that in the individual um, setting. So yeah, in terms of my work, I stay sort of more on the, the research and evidence based side, but uh, in terms of the individual application, I try to be relatively um, accepting of, of different viewpoints there. Yeah, I really like that. It's like the art and science of, of nutrition. Yes. Um, so with intermittent fasting, lots of different sort of thoughts around the effectiveness of 
effectiveness and why it's effective. Um, but can we start as well with your definition of intermittent fasting? So what are we actually talking about, Grant? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I will try to give a short answer. But first, I'll preface it by saying that it's not a short answer. Uh, my own definition has evolved. And you'll certainly see this used differently, not only in kind of the general online fitness community, um, but in the scientific literature. Um, so this has been and this is this is probably true in other areas where there's sort of inconsistent terminology that has to be refined over time. Um, but I was actually privileged to be part of this large international consensus project that's been going on for a couple of years, and we're about to submit the paper for this study. Um, it involved about 40 international um, experts on fasting, and we went through five different rounds of um, surveys as well as some additional kind of online discussions to refine um, kind of our usage of all these different terms related to fasting. So this included defining all these different variants of fasting, trying to come to a consensus, and we're ultimately going to put forth this put forth this paper uh, as a recommendation for consistent terminology. So that if someone is looking at a um, say research study about fasting and they're they're using this term and kind of referencing uh, this this framework we provided, we have this consistent definition where we know what we're actually talking about. Because um, if you look at the current literature, the term intermittent fasting is used very frequently and you don't typically know what is meant by that unless the authors have provided sufficient detail uh, in the methods. Um, so with that, with that long background out of the way, I would say that intermittent fasting, even as we define it in this um, consensus statement that will come out, uh, and I'll mention uh, Daniela Kopold in uh, Berlin, Germany, was the, the leader of this project. So she certainly deserves the, the lion's share of the credit for... Um, you know, wrangling 40 of us together and trying to keep us on track through through all these discussions. Um, but with that said, kind of the definition we came up with uh, or agreed on with intermittent fasting is that this is a broad term, including um, programs that use repetitive fasting periods with each individual fasting period lasting up to 48 hours. Um, but the implementation is fairly flexible. This could be a single day a week program. Um, this could be multiple consecutive or non-consecutive days per week. This would include paradigms like alternate day fasting, where you fast either completely or complete a modified fast every other day. Uh, and it would also, by this, uh, this um, definition we're proposing, include uh, paradigms like time-restricted eating, where you just have a restricted eating window each day. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what you've seen, but I think most people I talk to who are not in this research space, if they're just familiar with intermittent fasting from, say, popular press... They, they often think of time-restricted eating specifically. And even at specific hours, often they'll say, oh, intermittent fasting, that's where you eat from noon to 8 p.m. every day. And it's this very narrow definition that would fall under that umbrella, but is not the, the entirety of the definition. Yeah, no, that makes that, um, it, you're absolutely right, I hear that um, quite a bit. And the, the fasting mimicking uh, approach is interesting. And it's, I mean, I'm well familiar with it, but people get confused because they're like, well, how can you be eating, but you're fasting? So can we sort of talk about the physiological changes that occur during intermittent fasting and, and how modified fasts also sort of fall into this realm? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a few components there. First, um, you know, just for the listeners, when I say uh, modified fasting, it means, you know, a period where there's a substantial energy restriction 
but some energy intake is allowed. Um, by a very strict definition of fasting, this would not be fasting. And many people take this stance and I don't blame them for it, that uh, modified fasting might not be fasting because you're eating something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But typically as it's employed, if there was a modified fasting day, this might equate to someone eating um, about 25% of their weight maintenance calories. Um, so very low calorie, lower than you would want someone to go if they were employing the same degree of energy restriction every day. Um, this is often applied as a single meal uh, the origin of this came through, uh, I won't go too far into the weeds here, but um, some of the early alternate day fasting research, um, one, it's, it's relatively difficult. Alternate day fasting would be you eat on Monday, you don't eat on Tuesday, you eat on Wednesday, you don't eat on Thursday. So an entire calendar days where you're not eating from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. Yeah, um, That's a substantial challenge. And some of these early studies also showed uh, more lean mass loss than, than we would like to see in a weight loss scenario. Um, so both for the compliance side and also for lean mass preservation, that form of fasting, alternate day fasting, morphed into alternate day fasting, where instead of a complete day of fasting, um, you would mostly fast, but you'd have one moderate-sized meal that would contain about 25% of your weight maintenance calories. Um, so in, in one sense, you're, you're definitely still achieving a large energy deficit, even if you have these modified fasting days. Um, so those types of paradigms, including modified fasting, are more so targeting that energy deficit you're achieving rather than um, staying for a prolonged time in this sort of physiological state of fasting, um, which we can talk about. Uh, the fasting mimicking diet, which you mentioned, is interesting because it's, it's relatively low calorie, not, not quite as low calorie as 25% of your, your energy needs, um, but it's low calorie and there are the ideas that you're consuming um, certain foods that will sort of minimize um, your absorptive response, sort of minimize your body thinking that you're no longer fasted. Um, so for example, low carbohydrate um, and moderate to low protein um, foods and uh, kind of foods that are supposed to be formulated in such a way that you won't have these large um, kind of postprandial or post-eating uh, physiological responses that would sort of tell your body that you're no longer fasted. Um, so again, the idea is you can maintain kind of a pseudo-fasted state uh, even if you are consuming food over the course. It's often employed over, say, like five days um, every few months. Yeah, like Volta Longo's um, Prolon fast. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Grant, do you think, um, sorry, um, just before you go on into some of the, the benefits, like when I think about fasting, there's, a, there's that uh, circadian biology fast that is seemed to be removed sort of from the fat loss or the weight loss sort of fasting benefits. And that, that to me implies like, or suggests that you would want to complete do a complete fast um, of anything but water because you're doing it for a different reason other than the calorie deficit that comes with fasting that is one of the main benefits of fasting for people who are interested in sort of fat loss and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting issue you mentioned. So we do have um, kind of these different areas of interest in intermittent fasting and they do overlap because as you're mentioning on one side some people treat this um, understandably and even justifiably based on a lot of the literature um, treat this as just a different way to restrict calories um, on the other side there are many people trying to implement this say researchers trying to implement this um, in such a way that it's not really about the calories it's about um, circadian rhythms and eating at a time when your body is uh, better able to process the nutrients, um, able to process the nutrients more effectively, have 
kind of better, say, blood glucose and lipid responses to a meal. Um, so that's more of yeah the circadian focus. Now there's certainly overlap, and a good example of this that's a, you know as we mentioned a very popular form of intermittent fasting is time restricted eating. So there will be some settings where time restricted eating might be employed to um, say minimize nighttime eating or shift more of the energy intake earlier in the day, sort of for these chronobiology or chrononutrition reasons. Um, but depending on the person's diet prior to starting this program, it may also cause energy restriction. So there are a number of studies where um, there might be health benefits that are seen, and it's not entirely clear if this is solely because of an energy deficit or if there is um, this kind of chronobiology benefit. And there have been a few studies that have tried to tease this out. Um, and, uh, you know, I know you mentioned briefly offline and email one of these forms, which is early time restricted eating. Um, th there have been some trials where the researchers intentionally try to limit, um, say changes in weight. And they're really just focusing on shifting the nutrients. Uh, and there have been some benefits seen in those cases, not across the board. Um, but that's one area of research that's kind of still being, um, teased out from the scientific perspective, less from just the behavioral perspective, but scientifically, um, is this just another method of calorie restriction that's more complicated and for some people less enjoyable, uh, for other people more enjoyable, uh, or are these, there are these unique benefits related to our, our timing of nutrients? Yeah, it's like, cause I've, I've seen research that sort of shows us the, uh, the liver isn't as good at metabolizing carbohydrate later in the night. And, um, and so therefore we're going to get a higher blood glucose response, but, um, I mean, I, I suppose these early time-restricted feeding studies almost paint that picture, but other studies wouldn't suggest that it makes too much of a meaningful difference. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think it, in, I, I would say um, what I'm about to say is my view on a lot of areas of intermittent fasting. I think it depends a lot, even though you know, in research we're looking at group-level things. We're looking at yes. a whole group of people fasting, a whole group of people following a normal diet. Um, but really, we need to know something about the individuals and what they were doing prior. So if you have an individual who, um, say, struggles with um, nighttime eating, and what I mean by that is they're eating a large percentage of their um, total energy in a day and lots of their nutrients, um, say, after dinner or late dinner and continuing to snack after dinner, say, up until midnight. And you put someone like that on a time-restricted eating program where they have to stop eating at 8 p.m., um, that could set them up for a host of beneficial changes related to um, health, body weight, and so on, because um, they're limiting their eating opportunity. Uh, there are even implications for food selection. There are many individuals who might tend to um, be kind of on track nutritionally throughout the day. And then at home, you know, after work or school or what have you, um, they have access to uh, more foods, they have time, maybe they're watching TV, and they can tend to not only overeat, but maybe overeat on on things that aren't um, necessarily the most nutritious, nutrient-dense items. Um, so in that context, for example, some might see a big improvement from going on a time-restricted eating program. Um, there are others where there are individuals who are either already following um, a program that would be similar, like maybe they don't eat after dinner, um, and being allowed to eat till 8 p.m. would actually be extending how late they're, they're eating during the day um, or where it just wouldn't, wouldn't change it that much. So for them going on this program relative to what they were doing before, uh, maybe it's not actually that, that much of a change. So then we wouldn't expect to see much difference in various health markers, body composition, and so on. Um, so just as a broad principle in terms of the individual application, I think it certainly matters what someone was doing um, prior to these programs in terms of what they're eating, food choices, timing of the foods, and so on. 
Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So Grant, outside of the calorie deficit, which you mentioned, what are some other physiological benefits that occur with fasting and with that sort of intermittent fasting that we're sort of discussing? Yeah, so in the human literature, I would say, I would characterize the human literature as neutral on fasting. There are some studies where there might be isolated benefits of fasting itself. Lots of those are in the realm of early time-restricted eating, um, which we could talk about. I don't think it has um, great potential to be a strategy that would be easy to follow for a lot of people. Um, of course, we know adherence and kind of these behavioral aspects are really critical anytime we're talking about nutrition. So uh, even though it's interesting proof of concept, uh, you know, may not have, have wide application. Um, taking those out of it, taking the early time-restricted eating um, studies out of it, most trials have not really demonstrated a clear advantage of um, fasting protocols as compared to energy-matched uh, protocols. So say, say normal calorie restriction where you're not necessarily changing the eating window or the meal frequency, uh, but you're just reducing the, the energy content at each meal. Um, now, again, this is a group level thing. And in, in many of these human studies, we haven't seen these um, clear benefits, but at the individual level, there's certainly people who'd find it either easier or harder to follow a fasting program. Um, so with all that said, that's the human side, but um, there is a lot of literature, say rodent literature and, and other model organisms uh, that have shown really profound benefits of fasting. And this is where some of the optimism has come from. Um, and this is why there are you know, a large number of human trials trying to replicate some of these benefits. Uh, however, it, it's very difficult, as in other areas of research, to directly apply what we're seeing in rodent work to, to humans. And part of that, from my perspective, is related to the duration of fasting. So there'll be studies in rodents where they might put um, the rodents on a time-restricted eating protocol where they're consuming all their calories in, say, six to eight hours a day. Uh, and then we don't, and they see, say, profound health benefits compared to control animals. Uh, we don't always see those profound benefits in humans, um, but these, these same fasting durations are, are being used in rodents and humans, um, but it's really not the same physiologically. So an overnight fast or 16-hour fast in a um, rodent would be like several days of fasting in a human based on the differences in our metabolism. Um, so my opinion is that many of the human studies are probably stopping the fasting periods a little bit short of where we'll see uh, more interesting physiological changes that could actually cause a unique benefit of fasting. Um, and we've we've summarized, um, we wrote a review on this, at one of my doctoral students, Matthew Stratton and I and, and several of our other team members wrote an article on this, kind of looking at in humans, the studies we have of the physiological responses to an acute, like a single period of fasting. And in many cases, some of these physiological changes, uh, they start kind of after an overnight fast, but they tend to ramp up once you exceed about 18 hours of fasting. Um, so for many of these popular implementations of fasting, such as time-restricted eating uh, with an eight-hour eating period and a 16-hour fasting period, these fasting periods may be starting, uh, maybe stopping just short of where some of these more profound physiological changes occur. Um, so that's something I'm personally interested in for kind of future fasting research is some of these longer but maybe less frequent fasting periods in humans and seeing if we're causing more um, or kind of seeing outcomes that would be more similar to some of the promising things we've seen with rodents uh, in shorter fasts. So are you thinking like a sort of a 20-hour fast and a four-hour eating window type um, study? Like would that elicit some of these benefits? Would that be long enough? 
That would be one option. Um, I think some people could adhere to that without problem. It would be a challenge. So another option would be something like, you know, once a week, having a little bit of a longer fast, like once a week, getting up to a 24 um, to 30 hour fast, but but doing that once a week or a couple times a week. And there are some studies like this. These are forms of fasting that have been studied, but um, currently there's a lot more research I feel like coming out with what I view as kind of moderate time-restricted eating protocols where you have an eight-hour eating window. And again, for some individuals, they might naturally have an eating window that's not very different than that. Um, So if you took someone that naturally eats over 10 hours each day and just restrict that by two hours to eight hours each day, that's not a major difference for them uh, in most cases in terms of, you know, what they're intaking, when they're intaking it, and so on. Yeah. And Grant, what are your views on... um, fasting for that long and the potential for bone and muscle like have you like are there any concerns there that you share that I know that others sort of voice around the idea of fasting if you're over 35 for example yeah that's a good question so there the early like 100 year ago uh, fasting literature seemed to indicate that major losses of protein um, weren't an issue for a couple of days um, there are newer studies with more sensitive measures showing where, um, you know, we might have increased protein degradation um, earlier than that. Um, it, it's also a, another kind of line of research that would be, I guess, critical of fasting is related to um, protein timing and frequency in these muscle protein synthesis responses. Um, so there are lots of acute studies here showing that, you know, oh, it might be optimal to ingest protein every you know, three to six hours. And if you're going these long periods without stimulating muscle protein synthesis, this would be a concern. Um, With that said, the actual trials, and we've conducted several of these, looking at um, exercise training combined with different intermittent fasting programs, um, haven't shown clear detriments of lean mass when when protein intake is sufficiently high. Um, So in most cases, that has been at or above 1.6 grams per kilogram um, body mass. And we've seen, um, for example, a trial we did here in resistance trained females um, looked at time restricted eating with a eating window that ended up being about seven and a half hours each day um, compared to a group that was required to consume breakfast and their eating window ended up being about 13 hours a day. Uh, and over the course of eight weeks, both groups had um, equivalent increases in fat free mass, muscle thickness. Um, strength improvements and so on. Um, so, in some of these applied studies, at least in the you know short term, this was an eight week study. Uh, we we don't see a limitation on um, lean mass being gained in this case, and in other studies, lean mass being maintained. Um, so, this is often the case, but sometimes there's a disconnect between kind of the short term mechanistic trials looking at um, say protein synthesis and protein degradation uh, versus these more concrete outcomes uh, over time. So those are just a few thoughts um, related to that. I think, uh, you know, I'm a huge proponent of exercise, of course. So um, exercise would go a long way in any weight loss scenario. Exercise and maybe resistance exercise in particular would go a long way towards maintaining um, skeletal muscle mass specifically during an energy deficit. Um, So I'd certainly recommend that for anyone. And I think that would go um, that paired with sufficient protein intake and not too extreme of an energy deficit. All those together would be a good scenario for um, at least maintaining skeletal muscle. Yeah, no, that's great, Grant. And I definitely want to get back to chatting about your um, study with the resistance-trained females. Do you think um, that a an extended fast, like the one that you're interested in studying, for someone who who um, is carrying quite a lot of excess body fat, 
is is actually not as detrimental as someone who might just have like 10 pounds to lose. I don't know, the potential for being detrimental is going to be less than someone who is a lot more of that sort of stored energy. Is that Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think that, no, I would agree with that, particularly if we're talking about, um, you know, lean mass and things of that nature. Um, I think there is literature to support that, that, you know, leaner individuals may be susceptible to greater lean mass loss um, during these large energy deficits, where, as you mentioned, individuals with higher adiposity, it might be, might be less of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So Grant, getting back to your trial, um, I found this really interesting because of course, uh, so often, it's, you know, you read about in sort of popular media and, and social media, uh, the detriments of fasting for females. Was that what you were, was that one of your sort of things that you were looking at with that trial specifically is to see if any sort of detrimental outcomes? In a way it was, this study was exclusively in females. So in this particular study, we didn't have a head to head comparison to see if um, the changes were were better or worse than we saw in males. Um, but as mentioned, I would say it was, it was a positive result in terms of um, time-restricted eating being a viable strategy, um, even in the context of trying to to increase lean mass. Um, but you're right; there, there, it is very common to see, you know, like, oh, intermittent fasting is okay uh, for males, but but not for females. And um, you know, sometimes, you know, in popular press, it's not clear where the origin of this uh, is. But there were some early trials. Um, I don't know, probably 15 to 20 years ago with a form of fasting called 5-2, which would essentially be um, two days a week of either complete or, or modified fasting. Um, there were a couple trials that showed potential sex differences in maybe some um, less favorable, I believe it was blood glucose responses in um, females as compared to males. Um, so I think that it, for people who are looking at literature, sometimes they point back to those trials. Um, with that said, an enormous amount of the intermittent fasting literature has actually been conducted in, in females. And a good example of this is uh, Dr. Krista Verity, who's a leading researcher in fasting, um, has conducted a lot of trials, uh, first on modified alternate day fasting, and then now several on time-restricted eating. Um, where she recruits from, they, they typically have uh, the vast majority of their participants uh, being female. And in a number of studies, they've shown good um, health benefits, uh, body composition benefits, and so on. Um, of intermittent fasting protocols. So I would say there aren't, there's not a large, to me, not a large amount of strong support showing um, very clear sex specific effects where you would say this is recommended for males and not for females. Um, now, again, you, you could you could find some literature to support it. Even the acute fasting work I mentioned, there are cases where you see sex specific responses. Um, but my opinion is that nothing there in the acute trial or even in the long-term trials we've had uh, would be strong enough for me to say like this should be discouraged for females and encouraged um, for males. With the with the normal caveats, that certainly at the individual basis and talking about unique um, physiological states like um, you know pregnancy, breastfeeding, other health considerations, a number of things that would certainly contraindicate fasting. Um, but just looking at sex alone without any of those specific scenarios, I personally don't feel the literature is um, particularly convincing in terms of this being detrimental for females. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because there are definitely voices who would suggest the exact opposite. And I also yeah. wonder what um, population they're talking to as well. Like if you're talking to an already lean female who is trying to fast and train and unable to meet a 
sort of um, sufficient calories to support that, then that's never going to go well. But I don't think that'll go well regardless yes. of whether you're male or female. I don't think that's sex specific either. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a great point. And many of the trials I mentioned when I said there have been many in females, many of those admittedly were weight loss trials. So there were individuals who had overweight or obesity. And as you were, you know, rightly pointing out a moment ago, um, might be individuals who be, um, you know, set up to have better responses or less of these concerns. Um, certainly, as you're mentioning in in active females, and particularly um, an area I'm interested in, there's been a little bit of research in this, but not a lot. Um, would relate to like disordered eating behaviors. And I'm sure in some individuals, there'd be the possibility of um, exacerbating some, uh, you know, eating behaviors that would be detrimental. Uh, the group level data I've seen has not supported um, intermittent fasting uh, being a cause of uh, disordered eating or being associated with kind of adverse outcomes on, in kind of like questionnaires. Um, but again, I'm sure at the individual level for, for some individuals, it may, may exacerbate, um, you know, whether it's kind of binge eating tendencies or, um, extreme restriction methods and so on. Um, so like, like any program, I think, uh, the individualization, uh, and application would certainly be important here. Yeah, for sure. And Grant, did your, um, study, was it, um, looking at weight loss as well? And were your participants in a calorie deficit or was it, were they sort of on, uh, maintenance calories throughout? Yes. So they were very near maintenance calories. Looking at body mass in the time restricted eating groups, it stayed like completely stable um, with a little bit of fat-free mass gain and fat mass loss. Uh, our original intention was a very slight calorie deficit, I believe 250 kcals per day. Um, what we saw, which is not a surprise, even when we provided food scales and taught people how to weigh their food and so on, um, most of the diet records were coming back with um, greater energy restriction than that. Um, we, we know there are major challenges with monitoring energy intake in free living settings. Um, so we were seeing weight remaining stable, um, but people were reporting energy intake that relative to their resting metabolism and activity, which we had measured, um, appeared to be lower than the deficit we wanted. Um, so it's one of those things where you, you design the study on paper and you think, okay, this is, you know, this is what we'll do. We'll employ this calorie deficit. But then you hit some wrinkles where it appears they have this greater calorie deficit, even though they're remaining weight stable. So um, it ended up being where we weren't particularly tinkering with the energy intake. We, we were limiting the eating windows. We were providing supplemental protein. Um, but in the end, it came out where, again, body mass was very, um, very steady and did not change. Um, but we did see this increase in fat-free mass and slight decrease in in fat mass. Yeah, nice. And Grant, um, one of my questions was sort of, do you think that we've learned all we need to know about intermittent fasting? Um, but of course, you have mentioned just uh, just before that you're wanting to do some of these sort of extended fasts as as trials to sort of investigate what happens there. Is there anything else that you're excited to investigate in this area? Yeah. So as a researcher and someone whose job is research, I'll never say that we know everything we need yeah. to know on, on any topic because I don't want to be out of a job. But <laughs> um, yeah, so the prolonged fasting, I say I have an interest in it. I will say these studies are very hard to conduct. So this is why we, we are very interested in fasting. We do these trials periodically, um, but our lab has several other lines of research. Um, it's very challenging to, to do these, these studies in real life. So I have no immediate plans to do these longer term fasting studies. I hope someone will do them. It might end up being me. It might not. Um, but yeah, I think a continued area that um, needs to be refined is um, sort of considering how we're setting up studies. Um, there's sort of different paradigms here. One, and we, we've sort of alluded to both of these. Um, 
One is the scientific side. And in the scientific side, to me, there's still remaining questions on are there unique benefits of fasting itself on health in humans um, beyond energy restriction, beyond um, you know those, those simple factors? Can we control for those and actually see a, a meaningful health benefit uh, in humans? Now, that takes a lot of control. Um, typically, ideally, be done in a laboratory environment, even inpatient, providing all the foods. Uh, very expensive, very complicated studies, um, but they would answer an important scientific question. On the other end of the spectrum, we have more generalizable studies, studies we can conduct that would apply more immediately to the general population. And these would be focused on behavioral aspects. For example, if we give individuals who might um, you know, need to lose some weight, if we give them simple instructions such as eat all of your calories between noon and 6 p.m. each day, uh, is that a sufficient behavioral strategy to cause, um, say, energy restriction, weight loss, associated health benefits, and so on? Or in athletes, is this a strategy that would allow for maintenance of lean mass and performance um, at a, a slightly lower body mass? Um, some of those questions that are more, again, behavioral in nature or um, just implementing a, a simple uh, program. So to me, there is some research that's targeted both of those sides, and I think those both need to continue to advance. Um, I think the purposes of those studies need to be clear. Sometimes people try to kind of split the difference and do both studies at once. And as I've mentioned, it's, it's very difficult to be confident about things like energy intake in free living humans where people are out about living their, their lives. Um, so I do think there's a lot of potential. My interest primarily is in active individuals. So, you know, we've done several trials with resistance training individuals, um, several with endurance training individuals have been conducted as well. Uh, but I certainly think there's more, more information we could gain about whether or not this would ever be a beneficial strategy. Um, and if so, kind of in which context this might be beneficial. Um, so last area I'll mention there is, as I've sort of said, more in the um, broad, say, weight loss, health improvement realm, uh, we've seen a lot of studies where there was not a clear group level benefit of intermittent fasting protocols. However, I think that uh, in exist existing data sets might be able to be used for this, but some of this will have to be new trials. I think an area we can prove is looking at what factors might predispose someone for success on one of these programs. It could be related to um, their eating patterns prior to the study, could be related to um, kind of subjective or psychological factors. Uh, if we could identify these through um, questionnaires or um, say physiological responses to an acute fast, if we could identify some of these features that might indicate someone's more likely to find success on one of these programs, um, that might be useful in terms of the application, say in a, a weight loss clinic in their, you know, counseling someone through uh, what method of energy restriction might be useful for them. Um, so I could go on, but those are just a few thoughts, areas that I think we can continue to, to research and get some, some interesting answers. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And particularly the um, looking at that individual response is so important because we are individuals and not like averages, as, as I know lots of people like to say, and I like to say as well. Um, yes. Grant, before we move on, just to, I've, as you know, I've got a whole list of questions on body composition, but I actually will just focus on one, which I get questions on a lot. Um, can I just ask you about your endurance trials? Like any surprising findings from um, some of your endurance and intermittent fasting trials or things you weren't expecting or um, major take-homes? Because I have quite a lot of endurance athletes um, would listen to my podcast and be interested. 
Yeah, so I've only been directly involved in one of these, but I, I'm aware of several others. Um, in general, most of these trials have utilized eight-hour time-restricted eating, so consuming all calories in eight hours per day. The one trial I was involved in, um, the data collection occurred in Italy in um, the lab of my, my good friends and collaborators, Antonio Paoli and Tatiana Moro. And um, the kind of interesting finding from that, and this would be consistent across these other trials as well, is that um, that eight-hour time-restricted eating was um, sufficient to produce a um, small energy deficit and corresponding weight loss. In the, the trial uh, in Cyclists, this was the one uh, conducted in Italy, uh, there was an increase in um, relative peak power output. So essentially, peak power is maintained at a lower body mass. Um, so peak power relative to body mass improved, uh, but absolute performance did not um, change with, with time-restricted eating versus a controlled diet. So in that sense, there could be some promise for individuals, um, if there are individuals who might need to uh, reduce body mass or whose overall performance, say, in cycling would be uh, improved by, by having a lower body mass and they could maintain power output. Um, so some select applications there. Other trials from other labs and runners have seen similar things where this might be effective for um, producing a small energy deficit. And of course, that's not always a good thing. There are many athletes where we, we would not want an energy deficit and we'd be more concerned about a missed eating opportunity, for example, or missed fueling opportunity. Um, so some caveats there, but that'd be kind of with, with broad strokes, some of the, um, big picture findings. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And of course, when I, um, pop up this show, I'll put your research gate in the show notes. So interested people could have a look at the research you're talking about. Um, so Grant, obviously you're busy in the lab and in your other, um, and another area of research is the body composition techniques. So the one which I get a lot of questions from clients and, and people is on the uh, percent body fat that so they jump on their bathroom scales it gives them a scale weight but it then um, calculates their percent body fat and people get very sort of in, uh, sort of interested over what happens across the course of a week and they get very involved in trying to understand how their body fat percentage goes up, goes down. So can we talk a little bit about what's being measured and, and some of the um, benefits and, and limitations of that? Because it's such a common measure that people use. Yes, so... Conceptually, body composition is important and more important um, than, say, weight alone. Uh, we know that there are two individuals that could weigh exactly the same and have very different um, health and performance that's related in, to some extent to body composition. Now, we can't always estimate body composition accurately. And the situation you're describing is very common where the techniques individuals have access to are not always the accurate techniques. Um, these at-home body fat scales typically use a technology called bioelectrical impedance analysis. So they have these little, sil typically silver electrodes on the scale. Uh, you'll step onto the scale. And while the assessment is being conducted, a small imperceptible electrical current is passed into the body and then received back at the electrodes. And based on what the scale knows it injected into the body and based on what it's received, it can estimate sort of your tissue responses to the electrical current uh, with the general idea that tissues like muscle that have more water will conduct that electrical current more easily than tissues like fat. 
Um, now, this this is a valid technology in some settings. We have some device bioimpedance devices in the lab that cost um, you know twenty thousand dollars or more, and then we have you know these at home body fat scales that you can get some of them for fifteen to thirty dollars. Um, so not that price is everything, but I just mentioned that to clarify the point. This is a very broad technology. Um, so. Some bioimpedance devices, again, in the lab, if we have this nice device and we um, rigorously standardize our participants, we can get really good, useful data. If people are using these at home kind of haphazardly or even carefully just because of um, you know, the limitations of these cheaper technologies, the numbers they're getting may not be particularly accurate. So uh, our lab actually conducted a study a few years ago that included, I believe, 15 different bioimpedance devices, uh, including about a dozen at-home body fat scales. Um, so this is published, uh, Madeline Seidler, one of my doctoral students, is the first author on this. And we also kind of have a lay-friendly write-up. But one of the main things we we're looking at here was um, the, the reliability of these devices, so how consistent um, the measurements were they produced, as well as um, the validity and the validity over time, so how well you could track changes in body composition. And there were some devices that performed better than we expected, but the majority of these devices have relatively large errors, even in controlled settings. Um, so if you're a listener and you have one of these devices at home, um, you would, of course, want these controlled settings. And that would typically mean assessing in the morning after an overnight fast, um, you've voided your bladder, you're in the same um, minimal or, or no clothing. Uh, everything has, has been essentially standardized. You're doing it the same way every time you step on. Um, even if you're doing that, which is best case scenario, there is quite a bit of noise in the measurement. Uh, if you want this to be demonstrated, try measuring every morning for a week. So every morning, you know, be fasted, rested, everything the same, you step on the scale and just look at how much those values vary in a week. Even without doing formal statistical analysis, you can get a sense of um, how much uh, change there is in the number you're receiving over a very short period of time where you're not having a true measurable change in body fat. Um, so this is kind of a, a quick and dirty research experiment I'm describing for people to do. Say you saw that over the course of a week when you're not not changing anything with your lifestyle and so on, you saw this number varying by, um, say, a percent. Like say you had uh, 25% the first day, but over the course of the week, it was um, up to uh, 26% some days, down to 24% some days. Um, you may see that, again, when no real change is probably occurring, you may have a value that varies by, say, 2% total. Um, then I would recommend, you know, if, if you are implementing some lifestyle change or wanting to track this, let quite a bit of time elapse. You don't want to be actually doing this every day. That's just for the point of, of showing you the error. Um, you know, whether this is a month, a couple months, um, a year, whatever, whatever it is, um, then you can assess again, uh, ideally maybe a couple mornings in a row and averaging those assessments. And if your change is larger than some of that variability you saw just within a week, then you can feel a little bit more confident. Um, not entirely confident, but a little bit more confident that you might have seen a real change. Conversely, if you know this is six months later and you step on the scale, it says 25.5% body fat. Um, did you actually increase from the, the very first measurement you got of 25%? Um, probably not. Half a percent, as you saw, was well within just the normal variability of the scale. Um, so I apologize, Becky. I've gone on quite the tangent here no, about telling no, people to it. do their own experiments like at it. home. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say um, a, a important point to realize is any any method, even if you go to a research laboratory um, and get a DEXA scan done or something like that, there's some error involved. 
Um, so for any time you're trying to see if your body composition has changed, you should remember that general principle. Even if you don't have the exact numbers in terms of the percent error of a device, just realize that very small changes are unlikely to be um, real because just because of the inherent error. Uh, and I'll pause there to see what, what follow-up discussion you want to have. I know, this is great. And so if people are interested in um, using that number as a bit of a, a measure alongside you know, whatever else they're tracking, so we're really looking for a trend over time is of hopefully down because they're interested in, in losing body fat and to um, measure more maybe once a month to track that um, in addition to their other markers, and, and then they can be sort of confident as long as it's dropped enough and it's sort of outside of that era that they've already established. Yes, I think that's reasonable. And I would even say if you are doing a monthly assessment, I would do it maybe on two days in a row and average those. Cool. Because um, there is some random error that would be there at one assessment um, that if you average two, it helps reduce some of that random error. Yeah. So even if you're tracking every month or every two months, I would do it a couple mornings in a row under the same standardized conditions and then average those two values to, to have the one value that you'll actually use and interpret. Um, so that's another way you can help reduce a little bit of the noise of some of these consumer devices. And then I'd certainly recommend not only interpreting the body fat percentage. Um, so I would take, you know, body mass as well. Um, it's not perfect, but, but it is informative. Um, so body mass, maybe something simple like, um, circumference measurements, uh, a waist circumference, hip circumference, uh, depending on what type of training someone's doing and what their goals are, um, the limb circumferences, say upper arm and thigh could be relevant, say to someone um, trying to, to gain muscle, for example. Um, those would be other assessments you could take and then you could form kind of a collective picture. So if you had a scenario where, you know, over a two month period of time, um, someone saw that their body fat percentage went up. Uh, but their body mass is lower, their waist circumference is lower, um, say visually they, they feel like their clothes are fitting better. There might be multiple points where they think, I think I've actually you know, lost some body fat, um, so I'm not going to put too much weight in this kind of strange bioimpedance result. Um, so I would not get into the scenario where for one of these at-home body fat scales where it's the only metric you're looking at. Just because again, even under the best uh, case of standardization, averaging a couple of measurements, all these things, there's still enough error that you should should be eternally a little bit skeptical of, of the results you're seeing. Yeah, that's great. And what about for people who use um, in-body comes to mind, like the local gym does body scans and they might do them once every six months. Uh, and it's more than just stepping on a scale, you're, you're holding, like a, you've got a hand hold one as well. In fact, I used to have a, just a handhold one in the clinic. Um, are they like, are they more reliable because you've got more sort of touch points with that machine or not really? If everything else was equal, then yes. Um, yeah. So these normal at home body fat scales, you step on, it is creating kind of electrical circuit through your body. That's primarily running through your legs. Um, so my confidence that these electrical currents are going all the way out to your arms uh, and back down to just these contact electrodes on your feet is is very low. Um, so what you're describing is is true that if you have electrodes on your hands and feet, there is more of the body that's being seen, so to speak, by the electrical currents. Um, yeah, InBody has some nice devices. They actually now have a um, kind of high end consumer grade device. It's about three hundred and fifty dollars. So expensive, but not. Um, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, like, like the ones that might be at gyms. Um, if you do have access to a nicer piece of equipment, say at a gym, um, the main thing you'd want to be 
certain of is that you've standardized appropriately. So ideally you go first thing in the morning. This is before you've worked out. Again, you're, you've voided your bladder. You've done all the things that I just recommended doing at home. Um, because we've done studies on, on the InBody 770, which is a nice device and often, you know, the one that might be at, at gyms and so on. And we've seen things that as simple as drinking water, um, just like a bottle of water can pretty dramatically affect your estimates and, and not always in the way you think. Um, so in this one trial we did, we brought individuals in, they were fasted, rested, followed all these um, protocols we had prescribed. We assessed them on the in-body and then in one condition, um, they did nothing. They just rested in our lab and we continued to assess them every about 10 minutes for an hour. And um, in the other condition, they consumed water that would be one or two bottles of water is relative to body mass. And what we saw is because this the in-body device has a scale integrated, uh, it immediately detected the increase in body mass from drinking water, uh, but it didn't actually change the um, bioelectrical currents, um, what was detected. So what that meant is there was an automatic increase in fat mass. So we saw a, I think it was around one and a half percent on average increase in body fat percentage just from someone drinking water because it had increased their weight, um, but it, it was not yet de detectable to the currents. So something as simple to that, like how much water you drink on your way to the gym to be assessed. Yeah could influence your results. Um, so if you are going to use something like that, and, and BioMPNs, again, is a pretty sensitive technology, you just have to be very meticulous about standardizing everything so that you have higher quality data. Yeah, and meal timing the night before, does that, uh, is there a recommendation there, Grant? The night before, typically, one of the reasons we assess in the morning is that overnight period of um, rest, hopefully sleep, uh, normalizes a, a, a lot of factors. So we would normally say a minimum of eight hours of fasting before an assessment. Um, again, as long as this is consistent and at least eight hours, that would be ideal. Um, the exact timing if you ate at you know 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. the night before is not, it shouldn't be too impactful. Uh, now I would recommend kind of following, you know, your normal routine, so to speak, the, the day before and particularly the night before. So if the night prior to one assessment, you had, uh, you, you know, a feast and the night before another assessment, you ate very lightly, you could have larger differences in things like GI contents and things that might cause some uh, artificial variation in your weight. Uh, or, or even other things related to, say, fluid retention and so on. Um, so, but I'd say in general, as long as you have that overnight fasting period uh, and control your fluid intake, like the same fluid intake or no fluid intake the morning of, um, that'd be kind of the level of standardization that, that I would recommend. Yeah, nice. And what about hard training? Like if I was to go and do like uh, uh, a marathon training run the day before, is that going to impact on the reading the next day? Like, uh, and that's sort of outside of the hydration aspect. So I've sufficiently rehydrated yes. and stuff like that, but muscle damage or anything? It could. Typically we, um, when we're performing these um, research studies with, with all these methods, we ask individuals to not perform any moderate or vigorous intensity physical activity or purposeful exercise the, the calendar day prior. Um, so often we'll say it's a 24-hour abstention, but it really ends up being sort of 36 hours because they have two overnight periods and a whole day prior. 
Now, depending on how frequently you're assessing, that may or may not be possible. But if you're talking about the scenario where there's the in-body at the gym and you're assessing every six months, I would recommend, um, you know, ideally you would take a rest day prior or maybe light training um, the morning prior. So you have about 24 hours of rest. Uh, my suspicion is training status would play a role here. So if you're very highly trained and you go out for a long run the day before, but that's not, um, you know, it's a challenge, I'm sure, because you're pushing yourself, yeah. but it's not, you know, challenge your body the same way as someone who is less trained. My guess is that it would cause less error in the technique. Um, but again, if you are doing one of these assessments, I recommend uh, erring on the side uh, of caution, just trying to minimize any biological error, kind of noise uh, in your body that could influence the the measurement negatively. Yeah, nice. And Grant, finally, like, what is a healthy body fat percentage? Actually, like, I see a lot of different numbers as sort of like the high end cutoffs, and and people freak out when they're like twenty eight percent, but then I see twenty eight percent healthy. Like, what? Do, do you have sort of limits or cutoffs? What what values do you use? You know, to be honest, I don't typically because it's it's very much method specific and even down to the particular device. Um, so even on DEXA, for example, there are reference values published for the different manufacturers of DEXA showing what, um, you know, the different percentiles would be and so on. Um, if I were to give you those values for DEXA and someone has an at-home body fat scale, um, it's, it's very likely they would be different. Even amongst the at-home body fat scales, for example, the study we conducted, there were some that systematically overestimated everyone or underestimated everyone. Um, so I typically de-emphasize um, general numbers that could be applied across methods because the methods vary so much in the actual values they give. Um, so to me, it's probably more important to have a method that um, has been demonstrated to be able to track a change over time. And in, even though people like the numbers and they want to know if their number is good or not, um, it'd be ideal to focus on like whether that number is changing in the direction you want or say being maintained how you want, um, rather than finding some chart somewhere that tells you this is good um, body fat percentage. Uh, and again, there are other metrics. Body fat percentage can be useful in some settings, but there are other metrics, um, say like circumferences or, or raw skin fold thicknesses. Uh, metrics that would tell you some of the same information. Am I am I losing um, fat, for example, or am I likely losing fat? If I'm seeing my my weight decrease and my waist circumference decrease, and you know, I know based on my um, fat patterning that that's a that's a site where I tend to gain or lose fat. Um, things like that would would tell you the same feedback without the fixation necessarily on that body fat percentage number. Um, so I, I recognize I didn't answer your question because I usually try <laughs> not to give out. Uh, if we were down to the specific me method and I knew a lot of details, then I, I feel more comfortable providing it. But yeah. I hesitate to give information that then will be applied in a way that could, you know, be negative for someone. Oh, no, that was uh, such an awesome non-answer, actually, Grant. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and then finally, if someone had all the money and all the resources and access, what would be the, the gold standard for measuring body composition, actually? So currently for total body composition, um, at w and I won't go into too much detail, but as what we call the molecular level. So all the different molecular parts of your body, like um, fat, protein, water, and so on. The gold standard is called a multi-compartment model. And this is where you split all of body mass up into three or more compartments. Uh, this can go up to six compartments. Um, but this is accomplished by assessing someone with multiple different individual techniques. 
Um, so ex for example, in our lab, we would perform a DEXA, which is dual energy X-ray absorptiometry uh, scan on someone to get their bone mineral content. We perform bod pod to get an estimate of their body volume. We'd perform either a bioimpedance or dilution technique to get their body water. Uh, and we get a calibrated body mass and we plug all those into an equation that would take these different components into account. And we could get a body fat percentage, but we've considered a lot more factors than uh, any individual uh, single method does. Um, so that's one option, um, probably the um, most accessible of these relatively inaccessible options. If you were interested specifically in like skeletal muscle and adipose tissue uh, as tissues rather than um, molecules, like I was mentioning, then something like whole body magnetic resonance imaging, oh, yeah. um, would be what we do. And, um, it's relatively inaccessible, even in research, we're hoping to add that into our protocols this upcoming year. Um, but that's another method again, looking at the body in a little bit different way, but uh, another would be considered a gold standard method. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Thank you, Grant. And you're right. They're not yes. necessarily, um, accessible, but it's good for people to be, uh, aware of it. But then also, I mean, how you've described how best to use the data that we've got is so helpful for people out there who are interested in this. Um, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you and your research? Obviously, I'll pop it in the show notes. Yes. So um, I do share about our research on social media, um, mostly on Instagram. And my handle there is grant underscore Tinsley underscore PhD. Um, I'm also on Twitter and I'll share uh, updates there as well. And then I have a personal website, which is just grantinsley.com, where I have links to my research, um, some information about my research lab and other activities. That is awesome. And you have such a broad sort of research interest from all of the publications I've seen. Like this is like two areas, but there are so many other things um, there, which is super interesting. Um, Grant, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed the chat. Alrighty then, hopefully this just betters your understanding of the importance you might place on your bathroom scales and what they tell you, but also, you know, where you could go to get better body composition measurements and ones which are more reliable potentially than what you have on your bathroom scales. Next week, we have my mate and your mate, obviously, Dr. Cliff Harvey back on the show. We discuss functional testing, which is something we've sort of talked around but not really devoted an episode to. So Cliff and I have a really good discussion on it and we don't agree on everything, which I think is also really good because it just means that you get a much more broader perspective, I suppose, on the different functional tests that are out there and where potentially you might want to spend your money or not. So that is next week on the podcast. I will also just like to highlight that it's Black Friday this weekend and as per last year I will be running a Black Friday sale so keep an eye out on that. In the meantime catch me over on Instagram, Twitter and threads at Mickey Willardin, on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition and also at my website mickeywillardin.com. All right, team, you have a great week. See you later.